This podcast is supported by LinkedIn. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash marketer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. The last 12 months have been a roller coaster for Airbnb. First, the pandemic decimated the travel industry and cut the home rental company's revenues by 80%. By May, Airbnb had to lay off a quarter of its staff. But by December, after much rejiggering of its business, the company managed to come out on top. Its IPO that month put Airbnb's worth at over $100 billion. That's more than the value of Expedia and Marriott International combined. And then January 6th happened. Airbnb has certainly not been in the midst of the firestorm surrounding the attack on the Capitol the way Facebook or Twitter or YouTube have been. But a number of people who are alleged to have participated in the insurrection used Airbnb to book stays in D.C. This quickly turned into a dilemma for the company, which has a long history of struggling with trust and safety issues. So I wanted to talk to Airbnb co-founder and CEO Brian Chesky about how his company is navigating the aftermath. Welcome to Sway, Brian. Thank you, Kara. So we have talked many times. Brian and I, we just were recounting. I actually met Brian when he was just starting his company with his other founders at a coffee place in San Francisco about 12 years ago. You've done pretty well since then, I think. Yeah, I was just starting out and I think you were on those like flip cameras interviewing me before like iPhones had good resolution. Indeed, I did. So a lot has happened since we last spoke too. And I wanted to start this conversation by talking about the recent decisions Airbnb has made to cancel reservations in DC specifically. After the attack on the Capitol, you canceled all DC reservations for Inauguration Week. Walk me through how you made those decisions starting with January 6th. Yeah, well, I can just give background on where this all came from. In 2016, we updated our community standards policy to not allow members of hate groups to use Airbnb. And so we had a major uh, problem of discrimination on our platform. A hashtag Airbnb back was trending. This is people who would not rent to people of color, correct? Yep. So people call, we're trying to book Airbnbs and we're experiencing discrimination. So in the wake of that, we created a community commitment policy where every single user on Airbnb had to attest that they will not discriminate on the basis of race, religion, uh, gender orientation, a variety of other circumstances. More than one million people decided not to comply with that. So we removed more than a million members from this. And thousands and thousands of angry people also said, you know, how dare you, et cetera, et cetera. So how dare you what? What was the how dare you? A lot of the accusations were how dare you kind of side with the left. People thought these were political decisions. And I said, no, like, you know, is this a very low bar to not allow neo-Nazis on our platform? That is not a political decision. So in 2017, this summer, we started hearing that on forums, neo-Nazi forums, neo-Nazis were talking about booking Airbnbs in Charlottesville, Virginia, for the, um, you know, the Unite the Right rally. So we went to law enforcement and we banned anyone that we could find that was in- involved in this, that was a neo-Nazi. And ever since then, we've been banning people. So the, the first point I just want to make is 
we didn't just make a new policy or a new decision on January 6th in the wake of the Capitol insurrection. We've been doing this actually for five years. So how do you determine who's in a hate group? How do you, you know, just because they're on a, I'm going to the rally is enough to warrant that? Oh, no, no. They have to be an active member of a hate group. And so we're not the ones to decide. We work with the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI. I'm not sure there's one universal hate group list, but they each have a list. And we cross-reference those lists. And historically, what we've done is if we get any information from a community member or anyone else that somebody may be a member of hate group, we will investigate. We have an investigation team called the User Knowledge Operations Team. It's kind of a mouthful, but it's a That's team scary. who's- scary. User Knowledge Operations Team? <laughs> yeah, it's comprised of former law enforcement officials, people in cybersecurity, people from the U.S. government and around the world. Basically, what happens is when people post information publicly that they're intending to join a hate group rally or something, they have a, an intention that we think is nefarious, we will investigate. So we're not like sleuthing people's personal backgrounds. People can post whatever they want in social media within reason. We don't care. But that's our bar. How do you investigate them then if you're not sleuthing them? Does the government or ADL give you names, specific names of people? Or Yes, they give us names of members of hate groups. There's also hate group forums. And we don't monitor most forums, but there are a few that are places where neo-Nazis congregate online, and we do monitor those forums. So for the cancellations that were made ahead of January 6th, did you know that these people were traveling from the rally specifically? to? We had no idea what was like most people, I presume, what was going to happen on January 6th. We had absolutely no idea. But what we did know is that we had members of the Proud Boys organization, which is deemed a hate group by numerous groups. I, I think pretty much everyone deems them a hate group. We're using Airbnbs. You know, it was brought to our attention by community members, hosts, who said this account seems suspicious. You know, you can kind of tell someone's profile photo or the way they communicate. So we looked into it. As we started looking into it, we started noticing a number of Proud Boys are trying to use Airbnb. We were able to stop, we believe, quite a few Proud Boys and other members of hate groups from using Airbnb on January 6th. But there's no question that some of the people involved in the Capitol insurrection were staying in Airbnb. We don't know how many. How many did you remove before? Pre-January 6th for that day? Mm -hmm. I don't know off the top of my head. It was more than just a few. It was enough that, like, you know, the team brought this to me as a major issue. And of course, we called the mayor of D.C., Mayor Bowser, the governors of Virginia and Maryland. We retained the former police chief of D.C. as an advisor. And we created this whole protocol to try to elevate and go from reactive to proactive. So we asked the user knowledge operations team to start proactively investigating um, where neo-Nazis are congregating and other members of hate groups and to actually be more proactive. As part of that, we had a debate about what do we do about the inauguration, and we decided it was frankly going to be an easy decision to ban all reservation D.C. We just thought the city was on lockdown. I had members of Congress and senators asking what we were doing and could we stop reservations. And it, it became a pretty easy decision that we did not want to be involved in anything that was going to destabilize our democracy. And you just said shut down because why should we even be part of like if a possible attack, second attack? Yeah, because the burden for us to confirm exactly who was in a member of hate group when we heard floods of thousands of people, and as many people might not have been officially in a member of hate group. In other words, you can't ban somebody from a hate group until you have evidence they're in a hate group, and that means you have to find evidence of them posting on a hate group forum. They might not have been, and so we felt like there could be thousands of people coming to D.C., and we don't want to be involved in this, so we should not be part of that. Is there anything else that you're doing in the aftermath of the Capitol attack to prevent bad actors from use? What is now your new policy? Absolutely. Post-January 6th, we've now worked with the FBI, 
the DCPD, U.S. attorneys. And one of the things we did is we got a list of people that have warrants out for them or have been arrested because of the insurrection. It turns out 130 of them were members on Airbnb. So we've now banned all of them. And we are now taking this framework and we're going to bring it to 220 countries. And that is the policy we're doing going forward. We're not going to be able to stop everyone because you can imagine 220 countries, just the context to track people down. So we've started the United States. We're now going to Europe and any major congregations. So political congregations, you know, I mean, 4th of July would be something we would just generally be monitoring because we think there's an opportunity for a lot of people to gather. So groups is probably the primary, but we are absolutely looking at major congregations and events. All right. So these people have been arrested. They haven't been convicted yet. So how are you tracking these cases as more information comes in? What if they make a mistake or? Oh, if they make a mistake, we want to make sure people understand there is due process. And we want people to know, like, we're intending to do the right thing. So if there's a warrant out, we're going to ban them from the platform. If they're exonerated and proven not to be a member of hate group, of course, they will be reinstated. They have an appeals process. I take appeals very seriously because I also don't want this to be like this Orwell. I think there's a dark side to taking more responsibility if you're not careful. You know, you could just start to feel very scared because the bigger tech companies become, the more if you're banned, it's like you lose a major right in society. Imagine being banned from a major platform. So we really do have an appeals process. We look at it very carefully. And if people think we've done the wrong thing, we'll take a look at it again. Have you gotten any appeals from January 6th arrests yet? I'm not aware of that. But the arrest at the Capitol is enough for you to ban them, correct? Yes, we believe that's enough. So is it owners or renters or both? Or is it both? Both. Both. Mostly guests, just because like for every host, there's like 10 guests or you know even more. Right. And is there a specific team assigned to hate groups? So individual teams? Yep. They're all different teams. So um, the kind of long name I told you is an investigation team that specifically focuses on a lot of dangerous organizations. We call them dangerous organizations or hate groups. They are part of a broader multi-hundred person trust and safety team comprised of cybersecurity experts and former law enforcement officials that also look into party houses, human trafficking, attempted terrorism, people harboring terrorists. There's a variety of things you could use a home for. Yeah. So does that mean an expansion of this? Yes. And our general goal is we, I mean, I would like us to be a role model. I don't, doesn't mean we're going to do everything right, but I like us. I'm kind of tired of hearing tech companies getting dragged into the future and people thinking they're not responsible, they're hands off, they're not acting like good actors. And we don't want to be part of that narrative. Are you going to uh, try to remove people ahead of time or just after arrests? It's pretty difficult to prevent somebody from signing up. I think eventually we could probably do that right now. You know, we kind of have to stop you after you sign up because it's hard in the sign up flow to just real time detect that so many innocent people could be stopped. So we don't stop them from signing up. We let them sign up. And then once they sign up, then we do an investigation if we have information. But we don't wait for people to be arrested. Like if there's any evidence you're a member of a hate group, then we remove your account, you're banned. Okay. So when Facebook or Twitter bans users, there's been a huge backlash who say it's censorship or political bias when they even put a label on it. Um, For the most part, you've managed to fly under the radar of these claims. So this is going to give people a lot of attention towards you as we don't want your business, you neo-Nazis. Well, first of all, I'm prepared to get shit from neo-Nazis. And I have been since Charlottesville. I mean, they, they don't like us. Number one, 
Number two, I do think we're a little different than Facebook and Twitter in the sense that I think with Facebook and Twitter, you know, there's a lot of topic around free speech and censorship. With Airbnb, I think it's about personal safety is kind of the top issue for most users. And so I think there's just a different expectation of the public that we will take more responsibility because when Airbnb goes wrong, you can be physically harmed in a more direct way. Do you see Silicon Valley following suit with this kind of behavior? A hundred percent. But there's no question, Kara, that one of two things is going to happen. Either tech companies are going to say, enough is enough, we're stepping up, and we're going to take more responsibility for what happens on our platform, or they won't. And if they won't, then there will be probably government intervention. And I think that, you know, ultimately society is going to win. So when you say this to your compatriots there, because you're friends with Mark Zuckerberg, you're friends, you know, what do, what do they say when you say this? I won't talk about any even specific, but I will say that most people generally agree, actually. And I, maybe people will be surprised to hear that. Two or three years ago, I think we were in the minority on this. I think there is a reckoning that has occurred. And I think people are coming around to the idea that the path we've been on is unsustainable. And so having talked to most tech leaders, I think most of them are coming around, but I'd say some at different speeds than others. And I do think some are way ahead of the curve and some are kind of, in my mind, maybe dragging their feet. And it's not to anyone's benefit. All right. So when we spoke this past May, there were just a few months into the pandemic and you had just laid off 25% of your workforce, 1,900 employees. Your valuation was $18 billion, which is almost half of what it had been valued at the start of the pandemic. You had to borrow a billion dollar uh, loan on top of a billion dollar uh, bond deal. You weren't sure when you would go public that year, but things were not looking good. Yeah, it seemed as soon as the summer, it was inconceivable to almost everyone that we would be public that year. It was so inconceivable that we put the IPO project on hold, we put the S1 on hold, and our bankers went on to other IPOs. Talk about that that interim period. You had a lot of great ideas, and you put them all in a drawer, and then you didn't go public, and you had to sort of clean up your business. Now, you saw a little bit of a turnaround during the pandemic as people were renting more houses, just shifting their behaviors, correct? The whole thing was shocking to me. I mean, the first thing was I never thought our business would drop 80% in eight weeks. And there was a lot of fallout, fallout including laying off 25% of employees plus another 10% of the employee base that were contractors and fixed-term employees. And so at that point, we're like, okay, this is a long road and we're probably not going to be public this year because it seems like our revenue is going to be half of what we were forecasting. Then something remarkable happened. After having been locked in their homes, quarantining for months, many people, especially in the United States, said, I have to get out of the house. People got in their cars and they were traveling two to 300 miles. So they were renting nearby. Yep. And so that meant a huge rebound in Q3. So you felt confident you go public when? Probably by August. I mean, we filed it in August. So I, I spent like the month of July into August working on the S-1. It's essentially a document you file with the Securities Exchange Commission to explaining your business. It's the map of your business. Yeah. In, in our case, it was a 400-page document. And every single thing has to be kind of verifiably true by the SEC. So the S-1 had to be totally rewritten almost entirely because the S-1 was describing a business that in a sense no longer existed. And we had a new business. It was very much focused on our roots, individuals, host, and it wasn't about transportation, hotels, and a one-stop shop for travel. So in December, you debuted the stock market and you surpassed a $100 billion valuation on the first day of trading. Your initial public offering price was $68 and you closed at $144.71. What was your reaction to those numbers? 
<laughs> well, I think my reaction was caught on camera in an interview. I was completely speechless. Not only was I not anticipating the stock price to more than double on the day of trading, but a company that was $18 billion not long earlier to then close at $100 billion, my whole like hard drive melted in my head. How could we go from 18 to 100 in a year? Yeah, how could you? So what, what do you think about that valuation? There's, you know, there's a lot of talk about overvaluation or a bubble with a lot of companies. So why do you think you're getting that number? We had a fast rising valuation to 31 billion, but then we were stagnant for four or five years. So I had felt like our valuation was like kind of stuck at like 30, 31 billion for quite a few years. And so there felt, I felt a little bit like this is a bit of a lagging indicator that we've made more progress than we're getting credit for, but that's okay. Okay. But even we were left uh, speechless by the numbers and it's not because you think they were overvalued. It just, you didn't think it would return that fast. This exactly. shift between 18 and whatever it is now. Yeah. It was just a very dramatic thing. So when your first earnings report since going public came out recently, it showed 22% year-over-year drop in revenue, which was actually better than what you and others had predicted, um, and $3.89 billion in net loss. It seems to me like your company was predicted to lose money, but then was also valued very highly. So explain to people why the valuations are high when companies have losses. The first thing is no investor invests in a company if they don't think they'll eventually be profitable. But Technology companies... Well, there's some speculators. <laughs> Wall Street bets. <laughs> GameStop is not worth whatever it was worth. Certainly. I guess I'm speaking for super, um, obviously, sophisticated investors. The idea is that, you know, you can invest ahead of growth to get to massive scale. And when you get to massive scale, of course, then you can get higher margins. And what I think sh it, you show is that you have a profitable core. You use that profitable core to invest in new ventures. And that was true of Airbnb as well. I mean, we were taking our profits and we were investing in like nine other divisions and probably were overextended. But when we pulled everything back, I think we were able to show investors that the inherent business was profitable. Are you planning to rehire more people or where, where are you going to add costs and grow again? We're never going to add costs like we did before at our same scale. So we're not going to add you know, the same amount of marketing or same amount of people for that size business. We are going to rehire people that were laid off. We have rehired dozens so far. The majority of people laid off were hired elsewhere, but we are intending over the coming years to hire back as many people as possible that want to come back. Um, at this point, we're going to be a much leaner and more focused company. And that was the problem we had. We were trying to spin too many plates. It didn't work. And so we're never going to lose that focus. So the, let's talk about the specific things. Content? Yeah, yeah. So we had content. We had a, a magazine. We shut it down. We don't have an intention to restart the magazine. We don't have any near-term plans for content. You know, never say never, but no near-term plans. We shut down. Don't have near-term plans for airlines. I think that- You did, though. We, we did. We had a flights product. We actually built it. We were testing it. And then we closed the whole thing down. I think the whole transportation industry is going to go through a transformation. So I kind of think it's best for to let that play out. Um, and it's, it's more of a commodity business. There's not as much we can do in that business. We pulled back our investment on hotels. Um, we still have hotel tonight. I'm very proud of it, but we're just not investing as much in the grand scheme of things. Business travel. We had a big business travel operation. I don't think business travel is coming back to pre-COVID levels because a world of Zoom. I mean, I can keep listing it, but I, those are just a few examples. So these trends you see as the vaccines rolled out is an increase in consumer travel is what you're talking about, right? Yes. We don't think business travel is going to come back for a while. I don't think it ever fully comes back the way it was because I think a lot of people are saying, I don't need to get on a plane to go to that meeting. Because business travel is not coming back as much, we think that's going to create more leisure travel because the more you're working from home, 
the more you kind of want to get out of the house. And so we think there's going to be a mix shift from business travel to leisure travel. We also think there's going to be a mix shift from mass travel, people kind of staying in big resorts, people going on to like, you know, Times Square or double-decker bus tours, to staying in smaller towns and communities, many communities that don't even have hotels. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Brian Chesky after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So let's get to hosts. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, one of the biggest challenges you faced was that hosts were upset by the way Airbnb allowed guests to cancel reservations and get refunds. Do you wish you had done it differently? Yeah, absolutely. When the pandemic occurred and the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, we had guests wanting to cancel around $1 billion worth of reservations. And these were reservations that we would have had to override the host cancellation policy to get their money back. And this is a conundrum. Do you refund the guests their money but then the hosts aren't going to get paid. And this is a recession now, so they need the money. And we didn't really want to side with guests or hosts, but we thought we don't want people to feel like they have to travel and put themselves in a moral hazard because they can't get their money back. So we decided to override host cancellation policy to refund them. That was likely the right decision. I think it was. But we just blindsided the hosts with it. And we didn't consult them. We didn't tell them. We didn't treat them as partners. And there was a very big backlash. It was a huge learning lesson for me. And we did listening sessions of 4,000 hosts. And we committed to doing better. And we made a lot of changes. And All right, committed to doing better is, a, is corporate speak. What does that mean? 
okay, we updated our cancellation policies. We improved a number of tools that they were upset about. We started investing a significant amount more in customer service because they told us they wanted us to be more accessible and available. And then the other thing we did is we created an Airbnb host endowment, kind of model after a college endowment. And we took 9.2 million shares, what is today valued you know, around nearly $2 billion. We created a host advisory board of 17 hosts, and we've asked them to advise us on what to do with the endowment. We also <laughs> took $250 million off our balance sheet, which doesn't maybe sound like a lot for a company like Airbnb today, but at the time when we were having trouble raising money, it certainly felt like a lot of money. We gave that to hosts. So it didn't make them all whole, but it you know made them like 25% whole on their canceled reservations. Yeah, because some of them online say they didn't get any money. There are those that they really very little compared to what they lost. Did you distribute all the money in that fund? Yep, we distributed all the money. It was $215 plus I think an incremental more than $10 million of a grant program as well. Did you want to now, given how high your stock is, make them whole of what they lost, that $1 billion? Do you see yourselves doing that or not? No, I mean, I think the endowment is kind of, we've we've consulted and the vast majority of hosts we've consulted with, and I'm not saying this is everyone, there's many hosts who feel differently, but having consulted the host advisory board and other community leaders, I think most hosts feel good about where the relationship is now, how we've handled it. And just to be super clear, I've committed to putting in more than $100 million of my own money into this endowment, and that will be probably the first of numerous gifts I make. So now one of the things that hosts can list their their homes on other services like uh, VRBO or asking potential guests to go to Craigslist to book there for a cheaper rate. Are you worried about that issue of people going off your platform or finding other ways? How do you combat that? I'm not too worried about it because we don't think it's happening very frequently. And the way to combat that primarily is to make a service so good that they don't have a reason to take it offline. For example, you take it on Craigslist, your home gets trashed, you might not be insured. You do an Airbnb, you have a million dollars coverage. Yeah, there is a book direct hashtag though and stuff like that. So you think that the services you provide, like insurance, like payment and stuff like that. I don't think many people are trying to do it just statistically. It's 4 million hosts. I think you'll find a few examples. You're not going to find thousands. And the people who want to book direct are typically larger enterprises that are trying to build their own brand. So these are large property managers, not all the time, but usually. Yeah, that they want to do their own. Yeah, they want to have their own brand and they don't want an intermediary. Which you are. We are. And I think our regular people don't think of us as intermediary. Like they can't conceive of doing it without us because they're not trying to run a business, like a big business, most of them. One of the things that you had been involved in was a number of legal disputes with cities over short-term rental regulation as well as tax collection for years. So what does it look like these days? Because cities have changed. Rents in San Francisco are down 20%. There's all kinds of activity where there's lots of room suddenly, or more room. I guess San Francisco will never be total room. But how has that changed? It's totally changed. I mean, I'd say the pandemic was a reset on our relationship with thousands of cities. So a lot of cities have major budget shortfalls. I mean, a huge amount. And these cities are going through budget crisis. Many hotels are shutting down and not coming back. They're losing all their conference business, all their business travel. And so now we're trying to just work with cities that want tourism. But you're all seeing some new laws being proposed in San Diego, Vermont, Philadelphia. It's not a total reset. How do you look at those? Well, San Diego, actually, we think those are generally positive developments. Air San Diego existed in a kind of back and forth with hotel unions for a long time. There was discussion of banning Airbnb. There was a compromise with the city council. 
Eight out of the nine members voted in favor of you know, amending the ordinance to make sure it was legalized. The hotel unions supported it. There was a compromise around some registration schemes, but we supported it. So the, the lack of power of hotels now is good for Airbnb, the, the lessing power. <laughs> well, I, I think maybe another way of saying it is I think hotels are realizing they need more guests in their hotels and they realize a lot of guests are on Airbnb. And so hotels are now reaching out to us as well. I think hotels are realizing that we're a part of the future and the best opportunity for most of them is to list on Airbnb. All right, but speaking of one particular city, relations with New York City had been particularly strained and you settled a lawsuit against the city's collection of host data last year. Recently, Governor Cuomo, who may or may not be there by the time this airs, proposed that home sharing businesses like Airbnb should collect sales tax. What is your outlook on that? And also, where are you with New York now? We think that's a great thing. The city of New York had decided since 2013 to not allow us to collect remit taxes. I think the fear was to do that would be to legitimize the business. And some people didn't want the business legitimized. What happened is in the pandemic with budget shortfalls, I think the governor of New York and others in the state decided they could use the tax dollars. And so we were like, of course we want to do that. If they want to collect our tax dollars, we would surely comply. And your relationship with the city? I can't say it's great because it's complicated, but it's much better. I mean, we've complied in every way that they've asked us to, as far as I can tell, and we're trying to pay taxes to a city that has a huge shortfall. I think the point is that New York had a perception that maybe they had an over-tourism problem. There were too many people. They don't need the people. Now I think the city of New York is saying, we've got an under-tourism problem. There's not enough visitors. It's a major problem in the economy. We need to make this city a little bit more friendly to travelers. And maybe working with Airbnb would be part of that solution. You don't want to go back to those disastrous bus ads where you said, you're welcome (laughs) for the money. I mean, this was an ad where you essentially said, you're welcome for the money for the sales. Yeah, it was a super passive-aggressive billboard campaign. I think it was aggressive-aggressive, Brian, but go ahead. Aggressive-aggressive. There was extremely obnoxious billboards, and we tried to take them down. The moment I saw them on Twitter. And I'm like, what the heck are these? And we tried to take them down. They were highly embarrassing. So you're, you you don't have that attitude like cities now. You, no, now you must dance no. to the tune of Airbnb. That's the kind of technology attitude that people hate. Okay. So lastly, I want to talk about where tech is right now. Now, Airbnb usually isn't very central to conversation, say, about Section 230, which protects companies from being held liable for online content. But you have cited 230 in your lawsuits. And, and can you explain how it applies to Airbnb? Yeah. So Section 230 essentially provides some protection against being liable for the activity in your platform because you don't, you're not the creator of the content. So in our case, we do think we are responsible to a point. To be super clear, like when the damage occurs, we try to refund guests. We often pay out of pocket for issues. So we don't think we're not responsible. We just don't think we're 100% responsible in every single incident, that that you would never be able to have a business like Airbnb that was possible. They're not our homes. So we think there are limits to our ability to self-regulate, but we try to do absolutely as much as possible, and it's very expensive. And so, you know, we think there have to just be some protections. Otherwise, I think internet platforms, as they know it, probably can't operate. What would you like to see? Reform. You're talking about reform of it. What would you support besides leaving it in place? I don't know. I mean, this is getting fairly technical. This is probably beyond me as far as uh, I want to say, I don't know if Section 230 is the thing that should be amended. You may have an opinion. I don't have a strong opinion on that. I do think that technology companies do have to take more responsibility. I think technology companies should um, cooperate with 
additional regulation that will likely be passed. I think regulators should be careful about going so far that it has unintended consequences that they don't like in the first place. Like we are in a recession, like people still need to make money. They need to be able to do things. And there's a lot of great things about the internet being a fairly free place. I think the internet started as a free place. I think then we all realized not everyone's a good actor. And I think what we don't want is a pendulum where it goes so far the other direction, it kind of stifles everything. So I think we just want like a sensible middle ground. Okay, so as you know, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Google's CEO Sundar Pichai, and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey will be appearing for the House Energy and Commerce Committee to answer questions about misinformation on their platforms related actually to January 6th too. Why have you not been called to Congress? I, I can't tell you why they have not asked me, but I can tell you that we're in touch with Congress a lot all the time. I mean, I think we tried to be proactive. I mean, we got Eric Holder involved before Uber did. I think we were the first tech company to get oh, Eric Holder involved. Hiring Eric Holder. The Eric <laughs> Holder move. Like, it, it became like a, a power move. But <laughs> we did it. And, you know, it was like, and that was, it wasn't like a thing to do when we did it. Right. We did okay. It. All right. And so I do think our reputation, not among all politicians, but in DC, among the US Congress, is we're more proactive than maybe some other companies. Right. So how do you deal with misinformation on your platform? I guess it would be limited to comments, right? Is that where it would be? Yeah. Misinformation in our place would be misrepresentation of two things, either misrepresentation to listing. So that's like, that doesn't look like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says there's no hot tub. It doesn't really fly in the face of democratic issues or reviews. The reviews is probably the biggest one where both sides review each other. Sometimes they don't like it. And we have to adjudicate these reviews, and that's not easy. And so if we remove every review when somebody makes a complaint, you won't trust the review system, but we have to look into it. So those are the kind of things. And I think that my guess is maybe people have felt like that's not elevated to the same level of seriousness as some of the matters on the social media platforms. I think Airbnb, they're more focused right now on safety, whether it's COVID spreaders, violence, you know, things like that. And you know, things like privacy cameras, creep Yes, and yes. Like yeah, that. I call it safety. Would you be surprised to know that I have a very high rating on Airbnb with among reviews? <laughs> you think um, I wouldn't. I, 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 cl- won't, I'm, I, won't. I leave the places neater than when I get there, just so really? you know, neater. I, yes. I, 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 that doesn't surprise me, although <laughs> it would shock me to know that you leave positive reviews every time because I, you're- I do, kind of. I, really? I've, had, I've had a pretty good experience you're at all pretty, these places. You're pretty critical. You're pretty critical. I am, critical. I am. That is true. You have Thank discerning you, taste. <laughs> I am discerning. You're critical, and I mean oh, that as a compliment. You were going down like you're a jackass, Carrot, too, no, and then no, you I'm said not. discerning. You are. You're very discerning. You're one of the more discerning people I know. Every time you tell me you use Airbnb, 80% of me is super excited. And 20% of me is says, please, please <laughs> yes, host, yes. you better do a good job. And <laughs> okay, Brian Chesky, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba El Orbani, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact checking by Kate Sinclair and Ben Phelan. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Liriel Higa, and Jamie Colazzo. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast, so subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, and please leave us a five-star review or else, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. We release every Monday and Thursday. 
Oh, and one more thing. I just wanted to mention that two New York Times op docs are nominated for Academy Awards this year. One is the film Time and the other is a concerto is a conversation. You can go to nytimes.com slash opdocsawards to watch them and find out more. Thanks for listening.